The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. God loves you so much. He loves you so much more than anyone else does. God loves you more than your parents do. He loves you more than your spouse, your children, your best friend. God's love is deeper than that, fuller than that. It is more complex. God's love for you is unsearchable and perfect. It's not superficial. It's sacrificial. John famously wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul wrote in Romans that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God the Father demonstrated his complete approval and satisfaction of his son's death by raising him from the grave. That's how much God loves you. That's how zealous he is for you. That is how deeply he wants what is best for you. While you were a sinner, he sent his son to die for you so that you could be rescued from the power of sin and death and hell. He loved you so much that he provided the Savior. And it cost him the life of his son. So how do you think God feels when false teachers and false religions disparage, diminish, or deride the person and work of Jesus Christ? When they present new and improved ways to get to heaven. When, when false teachers lead people astray from the true freedom and holiness found in Christ and, and lead them to the chains of an immoral lifestyle. How do you think God feels about that when he sent his son to deliver you? It should not surprise us that God has promised to judge those heretics with destruction. Early in chapter 2, Peter warned about false teachers and he used this illustration of a planted field. That from long ago, God has planted the field of judgment against false teachers. And when it's time to harvest, you better believe he will. Destruction awaits those who lead others away from Jesus Christ. And who lead others away from the authority of God. The last couple weeks, we saw Peter gave us some examples that God does indeed know how to judge. He judged the angels. He judged the world during Noah's day, and he judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But remember, he can also deliver too. With Noah and Lot, we saw that. Now, as we're back in 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 10 this morning, we're going to see Peter continue with this warning of, of false teachers, and he's going to paint a rather unflattering portrait of these teachers and expose their end. 
at the end of this chapter is where we really see Peter's aggressive, redneck, Galilean personality come out. That the boldness and, and, you know, rashness that he's famous for is apparent and evident. He holds nothing back when he talks about false teachers. One author says this, Peter plunges into a devastating, full-length portrayal of the coming false teachers. The language is intense and colorful as his scathing denunciation gushes forth in one sweeping torrent. Another man said that this is the most violent and colorfully expressed tirade in the entire New Testament. But Peter is not just throwing a fit. He's not just saying ugly things about people. He's telling the truth about these people. And he's led by the Spirit to write each and every word. God has no mercy reserved for false teachers. They will be judged. And Peter writes harshly because we need to be warned. That's how seriously God takes this. That's how seriously God takes you, His truth, and His Son. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 10 through the first part of verse 13 this morning. Peter writes, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels which are greater in power and might... Bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. And we're going to stop right there in the middle of verse 13 this morning. Really in verse 10, the first part of verse 10 is really just a continuation of that long conditional sentence that Peter began. Uh, and it, it sort of concluded in verse 9. If you remember, if God judged the angels and the, the, the world of Noah's day and Sodom and Gomorrah, and if he rescued Noah and Lot, look at verse 9 again. Then, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. But, but the reverse is true at the end of verse 9 and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be, fun, uh, to be punished. But notice verse 10 again. But chiefly them that walk. It's true in general that God will judge wickedness and, and those who are unrighteous. That is, that is a true statement. But chiefly, especially false teachers. Teachers come under a stricter judgment because they have the influence over other people. James even cautioned in his letter, he cautioned true Christians about becoming teachers. He, and he said this in chapter 3, verse 1 of his letter, We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James was writing to believers when he cautioned that. 
So when it comes to false teachers, God will surely bring judgment upon them for the way they have turned others from the truth and for the way they live their own lives. Notice in verse 10, Peter characterizes them in, in, in two ways. First, he says, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. This is just a way of saying that these men indulge in sinful desires. They're not holy men. They're not men to look up to. They're not men to model your life after. They let their sinful passions control them. And we'll see that again in a, in a verse or two. But these are unethical and immoral people who are completely driven by their carnal, sinful nature. They're not led by the Spirit. And when we think about someone who is completely led by sinful desires, does that not make us think back to the world during Noah's day and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that Peter just reminded us of the judgment that they faced? So these men are shamefully sinful. And they also, Peter says, despise government. The word government here in the King James translation makes it sound like these guys are revolutionaries that are rebelling against Rome or, or just whatever government they find themselves in. And that's not really the, the case here. That's not what Peter refers to. Uh, the Greek word here is not limited at all to man-made governments, but it's actually built from the word Lord. And so the way we might say that in English is lordship. Lordship, ruling power, dominion. Most modern translations use the word authority, and that's a good translation. And Peter just sort of stops there. It's, it's really sort of generic in a way. He doesn't, he doesn't describe what lordship they despise. He doesn't describe what authority he's talking about, and maybe that's the point. I read one author, and I love this quote. He said, they despise all authority except that of their own lusts. They despise all lordship except I, except me. And really when we think about where lordship and authority and dominion come from, where are we going to end up? All authority belongs to God. All dominion, all ruling power belongs to God. And so at the ultimate, at the end of the day, these are people who despise and scorn the authority of the sovereign God of the universe. And Peter's really already mentioned that. If you look back in verse 1 of this chapter, he already mentioned that these are men who deny the Lord who bought them. It was God Almighty through His Son Jesus Christ who purchased salvation for all of mankind, and these men deny that and they reject His authority. There's nothing more condemning than to despise God's authority. These men do that in their own lives and they would invite you to join them. And so God has judgment reserved for those who do that, especially leaders. So beware, never, never follow anyone who would lead you into sinful activities. Never follow anyone who despises lordship, especially the lordship of God. They're destined for judgment. Don't let them drag you down with them. You beware and you cling to God's word 
which Peter urged us at the end of chapter 1, not the words of these men. You say, why would people act like this, though, Brother Matt? Well, the end of verse 10 explains it, at least partially. One of the reasons these men are the way they are is because they're proud and arrogant. Look at the end of verse 10. Peter says, presumptuous are they, self-willed. Presumptuous and self-willed. These words sort of work together to give us a picture of someone who is just brazenly arrogant. They are bold, daring, stubborn, completely arrogant. Have you ever heard the old Frank Sinatra song, My Way? I did it my way. That's the motto. That's the theme song of these false teachers. My way. They don't, they don't care to listen to anyone else. They're too stubborn to change, even if they would. They are so proud and arrogant. And so when you think about that, it's really no surprise what we just read, that they live sinful and they despise authority. Because they are so arrogant that they are not teachable. They won't repent. They only do what they want to do. They answer to themselves. We have a phrase, legends in their own mind would fit these people. They are legends in their own minds. They have no respect for others, no respect or care. And then Peter moves on at the very end of this verse. He gives us an example that's sort of shocking of their lack of respect. And he says that these men, that they're so proud, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Our term blasphemy comes from this word for speaking evil. You know how serious blasphemy is. We think of just irreverent slander and, and evil speech, um, reviling and defaming. The word afraid here, though, is a little different than the normal word for fear. Here it actually gives a picture of someone sort of quaking and trembling or shivering. Sort of that, we might say, a physical response to fear. And it just shows if you were in the presence of, of someone that had some authority, you, you, might, you might show some humility. You might show some, some trembling. These men, Peter says, they blaspheme dignities. They have no trembling respect whatsoever for them. Say, so what did Peter mean by dignities? Some of you have translations that say glorious ones or angelic majesties or celestial beings. There's a couple different interpretations here, more than a couple actually. There are two that stand out from among the crowd that are, that are solid interpretations here, and I'll, I'll explain both of those. The word that King James translates as dignities is quite literally the word glories. It's glories. It means glory, fame, majesty. And most of the time it's used in the New Testament, it's used to describe the glory of God. Most of the time. It's a very common word. It's used over 160 times in the New Testament. But out of all those times it's used, only three are ever found in the plural, like we see here. Glories. All right? And if we look at the other two places it's used, it helps us to see the two most probable interpretations for this verse. All right? One of the other times this word is used in the plural is back in 1 Peter chapter 1, when Peter talked about the glories 
of Christ that were subsequent to his sufferings. Christ suffered and was then glorified. And so once this is used for the glories of Christ, and that, if we think of the context and what these false teachers are saying and what their attitude is, that fits here. They deny the Lord who bought them. They despise lordship. They even blaspheme the glories of the resurrected Lord. Speaking evil of the glories of Christ with no hesitation, no trembling, that has to be the climax of false teaching. And so that's one good idea here as far as what Peter meant. The other idea is also really strong and really good. The other time this word is found in the plural is in Jude, which closely parallels this part of 2 Peter. And we won't turn there, but I'll remind you there that Jude seems to use this term to describe angels, angelic beings. So that's why some of your modern translations translate uh, this the way they do. And if you remember in Jude's context... He specifically mentioned Michael the archangel contending with uh, the devil over the body of Moses. I don't know all about that. But I do know, because Jude said so, that even though the devil is pure evil and nothing good could ever be said about him, there was still at least some awareness some recognition from even Michael the archangel that he wouldn't just slander the devil. He wouldn't bring up just this railing accusation is the way it's translated. But he turned it over to the Lord. He said, the Lord rebuke you. That fits this context really well as, uh, also because notice verse 11, Peter does bring up angels, right? And he says, whereas angels which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Peter doesn't mention Michael specifically, but he does bring up angels again here um, in, in sort of what we might say a generic uh, sense. And the point is that even though the angels are so different from these false teachers, angels have enough respect and awareness and recognition that when they're before the Lord, they will not bring up a blasphemous judgment out of nowhere. Not just some random slander with no trembling, no fear. Even though they're far greater in power and might than perhaps fallen angels or definitely the false teachers. Both of those are really good thoughts here with this verse. Whether the false teachers were blaspheming Christ's glories or glorious ones or angels, either way the point ends up being the same is that in their pride, they show a complete lack of respect and recognition for anyone or anything that might be more than them. In their minds, there is no one more than them. Peter said, even angels have the, the humility to show some restraint in their judgments. These men don't. And so in verse 12, we see that these men are actually more like animals than they are angels or even men. Notice in verse 12, he says, but these as natural brute beasts. These animals. 
In what way are these men like animals? The point Peter makes here is that they're not motivated by spiritual things. There's no repentance. There's no turning to God. But they are like irrational animals that simply act on instinct. Most animals have instincts. And the, these instincts that an animal has has something to do with, with survival for that animal. Um, whether it be migration or hibernation, eating, drinking. They're just inborn. They don't need to be taught. Bears don't have classes on how to hibernate. They just hibernate. If you have a pet, did you have to spend a lot of time teaching the pet how to eat? Or did it just know how to eat? It just did it. That's its instinct. It's just, it's just what comes natural to that animal. And Peter's not disparaging animals for following those instincts. He's not saying animals wrong when it follows those behavioral patterns. But he's making a point that these false teachers follow sinful desires just the way these animals follow their natural desires. These false teachers follow sinful desires unquestionably instead of repenting and turning to God. They are like animals doing whatever comes natural to them, and it's shameful. I loved what one man said. He said, these false teachers are behaving in a subhuman, not a superhuman manner. Well, they, they place themselves above everybody else, but they're really acting like animals. And Peter keeps this animal illustration going. Not only are they acting like animals instead of being spiritual, but they're going to suffer the same fate that many animals do. Notice, as we continue verse 12, he said, these made to be taken and destroyed... Some of you have a translation that says born to be caught and destroyed or born to be captured and killed. It's, it's the idea of hunting an animal and, and, and eating it or, or, or killing and eating it for your, you know, for your food, things like that. The fate of these false teachers is the same as that eight-point deer you're going to shoot in a couple months. Born to be caught and destroyed. It's really a sad, sad picture of judgment for these people. If you act like an animal, don't be surprised if you're treated like one. God will bring judgment upon heretics who deny him. And they claim to have insight when they really have no understanding. And that's what Peter says next as he reminds us once again about the evil they speak. Notice the middle of verse 12, he says, These, They speak evil of things they understand not. It echoes back to the previous verses of them slandering either the glories of Christ or angelic beings. Things that are far superior and far greater to them. And they just, they don't even understand what they're talking about. They don't, they don't have awareness of this and yet they blaspheme. Have you ever talked to an expert who didn't know anything? You ever known anybody like that? It's painful when you're talking to someone who thinks they know it all and, and, and you know they don't and, and you're just, but they're so proud that you, there's no, there's no teaching this person. There's no convincing this person they're wrong, whatever it may be about. They're just too stubborn to admit it. These false teachers are like that. They don't even know what they're talking about yet. They're right. You can't, you can't tell them they're wrong. Speaking evil about things they don't understand. 
They'll be punished. Destruction is the result. We read in Proverbs this past Wednesday night that disaster pursues sinners. This is, this is a fulfillment of that proverb that Solomon wrote. It will happen to the false teachers. So notice the end of verse 12, what Peter says. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption. It's a little bit of a, a neat thing that Peter does here because the word for perish and the word corruption actually come from the same word. So it's sort of a play on words here. It's the idea is they will be ruined in their own ruin. They will be corrupted by their own corruption. I like the way the ESV translates it. They will be destroyed in their destruction. It sounds obvious, but corruption will corrupt you. If you live a life of wickedness and immorality and corruption and sinfulness, you can expect to be destroyed by that. It will ruin you. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Sin has consequences. And you have no one to blame but yourself. You made the choices. Corrupted by your own corruption. But at the same time as we look into the first part of verse 13, there's also an aspect in this of God's judgment. That's the other side of the coin, so to speak. First part of verse 13, Peter says, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. Okay, so don't let the fact that false teachers sort of have a hand in their destruction, their own uh, corruption corrupts and, and leads to that, but don't let that idea lead you to believe that God is this hands-off sort of God. This is still part of his judgment. Sometimes God's judgment can come when he just allows the consequences of sin to take over and doesn't shield you from that. That's fine. That will happen, but also these men will receive the reward that they deserve. Isn't the phrase, the reward of unrighteousness, kind of an interesting phrase? Sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? The reward of unrighteousness? When we think of God's rewards, what do we think of? We think of eternal life. We think of, of serving him in the kingdom. We think of the, the crowns and all the just innumerable blessings, unsearchable rewards that he has in store for his children. But here we see the word reward. It could be translated wage or payment. This is something that unrighteous people have earned. It's their judgment. And Peter reminds us once again, why? Why they will face destruction, why they've earned this reward. Notice the middle of verse 13, as they that count it pleasure to ride in the daytime. Once again, points to their sinful character. Our English word hedonism comes from the word pleasure here in this verse. And it always speaks of a, a, a self-indulgent craving or passion. Never a good desire. It's, it's, it's evil desire. So these men, Peter has already mentioned it, they, they walk in the lust of uncleanness. They're immoral and ethical. They're sinful, like animals just following that instinct. He brings it up again here, but now he says something a little bit different in that he adds this phrase, in the daytime. And this is interpreted differently, depending on who you, who you look at and read at. 
but it's probably a little bit like our phrase in broad daylight. They do this in broad daylight. One author made a good point. He said that even Roman society of that time with all its depraved features still esteemed such daylight lewdness as a mark of shamelessness. This will sound a little odd, but these men didn't even have the common decency to sin at night. Under cover of darkness. They're so brazen that they flaunt their sin. Any attempt at all to cover it up is only done under the cloak of spirituality so that you are enticed to join them and hand over your wallet to them and they can lead you astray and gather more of a following. They're going to do it too. Peter already said they're going to be successful early in the chapter. That's why we're warned of these men. We're going to stop right there this morning, and this will be a sermon that Brother Penn used to call a baloney sermon. Not that the words are baloney, but he used to talk about how baloney can just be sliced wherever you need to slice it, and you make a sandwich out of it. So we're just going to slice it right here and make the sandwich. I hope you see in Peter's description how seriously God takes false teaching. And that these leaders are destined for destruction. They have no one else to blame. Their own corruption will lead to corruption. But at the same time, God is sovereign in this and he will bring destructive judgment upon people who lead others away from his son that he sent out of love to rescue you. That's why he takes it so seriously. Because God paid for your salvation with the blood of his son. It's not a little matter in his eyes for someone to be turned from Christ. Place your trust in Jesus Christ today as your Savior, if that's something you've never done. And beware of anyone who would lead you to believe there is any other way. It's not Jesus and something. It's not Jesus or something. It's Jesus. Period. You be aware of anyone who would make you think less of Jesus Christ. You follow men who follow Christ who preach his word, who are not arrogant and stubbornly sinful men who despise authority all except their own. Beware of those sorts of people. Finally, I want you to notice just in this early description, we haven't even made it through the rest of the chapter yet. Peter's not finished. But I want you to notice how different these false teachers are from Jesus himself. Here, these are proud, arrogant, stubborn men with no reason to be proud. And yet Jesus Christ, who is God, willingly emptied himself, humbled himself, and became a man. These false teachers despise authority, especially the lordship of God. And yet Jesus submitted to the Father's will, even though it led him straight to the cross. These false teachers lived corrupt and immoral lives. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, holy life.
He was tempted like we are, yet without sin. These men are like animals following their natural instincts, obeying their sinful desires for their own gratification. Jesus Christ came to obey the will of his Father and to serve others. False teachers blaspheme glorious things without a shred of respect for them. Jesus Christ didn't even revile the soldiers who were beating him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In just a few moments, the members of North Bryant will observe the Lord's Supper. You be reminded of the sacrifice that our Lord and Savior willingly made so that you could be saved. And don't ever let anyone lead you astray from the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for the warning that you instructed Peter to give because we need to hear it. And we live in a world filled with these types of people. And we will pray that you will give us the wisdom and the understanding of your word to be on guard and to be warned. God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. If there's someone here today who's lost, we pray for their salvation. And we thank you for the reminder of your supper that we will observe here in just a moment. And we're thankful for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.